everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to my friend Josh Brom. Now, I suspect a lot of, of my listeners know who Josh Brom is if they're familiar with the pro-life movement, and especially with the apologetics arm of the pro-life movement, because Josh runs the Equal Rights Institute. He's worked in the pro-life movement full-time, actually, since he was only 18 years old. And after doing that for 12 years, he launched the Equal Rights Institute to sort of maximize his impact for the movement and to really test out his own ideas about conversational apologetics and how to build dialogue. He has now spoken for more than 23,000 people in six countries and in 22 of the 50 states. And his passion really is to teach people how to talk about abortion, especially in the conversational space. And just to give you an idea of how much experience he himself has in this regard, he's publicly debated leaders from Planned Parenthood, from the National Abortion Rights Action League, NARAL, uh, Georgians for Choice, and also one of the leading abortion clinics in Atlanta. So he has a lot of experience in exploring how best to reach abortion supporters, abortion activists, and even those who work inside the industry. I've known Josh actually for quite a long time. I really appreciate a lot of his work, and I'm really looking forward to bringing this conversation to you because I think there's a lot we can learn from what he does, especially for those of you who would love to know how to talk about abortion, but want to understand better how to do that. So without further introduction, here's my conversation with Josh Brom of the Equal Rights Institute. All right, Josh, uh, to start off, I suspect a lot of our listeners are going to know who you are, or at least they're going to be familiar with your work. But why don't you uh, give us a brief introduction to yourself, explain who you are, what makes you tick, and then how you ended up working full time in the pro-life movement, which as you and I both know is a very unusual job. Yeah, so I'm what? I'm 37. I'm a husband, father of three, um, a musician. I turned down a music career to do to do pro-life actually. And I was really moved to become pro-life and to work in the pro-life movement weirdly young. I was 11 years old when I started telling people I was going to be a pro-life speaker. And a lot of that really had to do with, I I wanted to be Scott Klusendorf when I grew up. We had these early, early Scott Klusendorf tapes, like before he was at Standerese and AM at at Accumulate Christian Camps. And I listened to these tapes so many times. It's like, I love this. I like the apologetics kind of side of this. And I was passionate about abortion because I just learned what it was. And I just kind of felt like, you know, like any overzealous homeschool kid. I was like, I'm going to go end that. I'm going to be William Wilberforce when I grew up kind of thing. It's going to be all about me. And so I I started telling people I was going to be a pro-life speaker. And then when I was 18, I got involved in a Teens for Life group. And then I started a Teens for Life group in Georgia, led that for several years, and then I got hired by various right-to-life organizations for a while until about seven years ago when my brother and I launched Equal Rights Institute in order to help pro-life people have a different kind of a conversation and just kind of a different take, a fresh approach on this, not just what arguments we're using, because we have found some arguments work better than others, but also just like, how are we doing the dialogues? How are we coming across? Having a more relational approach has been really important to us. And so we, we love working with young people. There's a lot of things in common between our organizations. We both do a lot of work on college campuses and trying to, to, to persuade people and and I know a lot of times we're using fairly similar arguments. Yeah, I think the first time I discussed apologetics with you, if memory serves properly, was 2013 in Chicago at, yep. at, a, at a conference discussing abortion, victim photography, and, and different yep. projects and things like that. 
what sticks out in my mind most is the late great Joe Scheidler was there. It was the first time I'd met him, yeah. the first time I'd met you, the first time I'd met a whole bunch of, of people, actually. It was a really fascinating conference. It was. And, yeah, and, and, and since then, we've, we've, we've met each other at, at other conferences, I think most recently at, uh, at, uh, at one Michigan. Protect, like Michigan. Yeah. yeah. And what interests me about what you do is, is the relational um, approach to it, because it's something that I think that you guys – focus on the most intently and, and more so than, than the group I work for more. So I, I, I would say that most apologetics oriented pro-life organizations yeah. do. And just to give you one example of things that I think are, are interesting about how in depth you guys get is, is correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your sidewalk counseling course, you know, recommends which brand of cigarettes to have on you. Yes. You yes. Know, to, that's to, true. To get an do. opportunity to talk to, to, to a guy <laughs> who might be outside a clinic. And as somebody who's been outside an abortion clinic where a guy was smoking before, and as somebody who's, you know, used like, you know, quickly fumbled for a lighter to, you know, to, to give a guy a light just so I can buy 10 more minutes talking to him, maybe give us an idea of how you've put together these courses, like the weird little things that only somebody who has spent an inordinate amount of right. time in front of an abortion clinic would think of. <laughs> yeah, well, so it started so so it started with an apologetics course. I knew when we launched ERI that, that we were going to do online courses, and that was because I've been following other people outside the pro-life movement a lot. So like Michael Hyatt was a huge influence to me in both the way that he blogged and then the way that he was launching online courses. When when we started ERI, like my goal was to help sort of, in a sense, train the future pro-life leaders. Like there's a lot of really good things in the pro-life movement. I don't want to be that guy that is just kind of constantly dogging on pro-life leaders who have been fighting this thing a lot longer than I have been. I do think that there are some things that we do that are just sort of bad habits or ineffective, especially when it comes to persuasion, because I think Gen Z just processes data psychologically like differently than Gen X did. And so we have to be willing to kind of like work with like what's actually working, what we're actually seeing working. And so the easiest way to do that was to work with college clubs because I feel like a lot of the future pro-life leaders are going to funnel through them. And then, well, if you want to reach a bunch of the pro-life leaders, then clearly I need to get to more people than I can physically speak in front of in a year. Like there is a limit to how many places and, and people that I can speak in front of even with the staff. And so the nice thing about an online course is it's scalable. There is no limit to who can buy the course or who can use it. And so we made an apologetics kind of dialogue tips course called Equip for Life. We weren't planning on doing anything with sidewalk counseling. There was another group that was doing sidewalk counseling training, and it looked like they were doing a, a pretty good job to me at the time. So I was just sending people to them and and not wanting to reinvent a wheel that didn't need to be reinvented. And then sort of just a couple of happy accidents happened where I accidentally hired an amazing sidewalk counselor and didn't really realize it. And that wasn't the reason that I, that I had hired him. But it turns out he's amazing at sidewalk counseling. And he's He's been doing this thing on the sidewalks in front of a person clinics that we try to do on campuses, which is try a bunch of different things and see what works. And sometimes we try things that fail miserably that we're like so confident it's going to be like, great. And it's like, oh, that doesn't work at all. And then we stumble upon things that work. He was doing that on the sidewalk. And so his training was so different than everyone else's. And I felt like I had a really valuable approach that we ended up then making a second online course called the Sidewalk Counseling Masterclass. And yeah, he has found that like, you know, if you, a lot of pro-lifers will be like, oh, great. Having cigarettes there could be a helpful way to extend this conversation, but they don't know what kind of cigarettes to get. Like they have no idea. And so just like, I have to, I like the practical. I want like, I don't want people to take a course and be like, oh, I'm convinced I should sidewalk counsel. I want you to know what to say. I want you to have a bunch of good opening lines ready to go and, and, and just like feel equipped to go out there and actually really do the thing. And that's what I love about Jacob is he's so 
practical and nitty gritty and has all these kind of amazing stories. So yeah, practical and, and scalable courses has been a big, a big part of what we've been doing. There's one thread I, I particularly want to pull on there, but first, what kind of cigarettes were they out of curiosity? Because I have a brand in my head and I'm wondering if it's the right one. I don't remember. <laughs> I'm so, my assumption would be like Marlboro Silver or Marlboro Red, because it seems the most common Red. on campuses. That sounds right. I think I think Marlboro Reds. He mentioned two. I only heard this lesson, like I, I heard it like for the first time since we filmed the course like about a year ago, but I think Marlboro Reds were one of them and then maybe cool something. I don't, oh, I yeah, haven't yeah, smoked, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Back to what you said before when you said that Gen Z processes information differently than, than Gen X. I find this to be really interesting because one of the, the I think, barriers to communication, not only between pro-life groups that focus on different areas, but also uh, pro-life groups in different countries, is that yeah. uh, culture has a lot to do with how you receive the information as well. So when yeah, I was yeah. in Ireland for a couple of weeks leading up to the referendum in 2018, it was extremely yeah. common for the debate to like literally circle around whether or not it was murder. And everybody had been so used to calling it that because it was illegal and considered homicide under law that this was a real debate you could have in a way that would have never worked on the University of Toronto campus, yeah. uh, for example. And things that would work in front of, a, of an abortion clinic, for example, in Canada would um, never work in the States and vice versa. Like, right. I, I've had extensive conversations with pro-choice people, I think, in five countries. And in every country, you have to amend your arguments and you have to discuss things very differently because people have like yes. different moral formation, different cultural formation, different ways of understanding information. And what we have found, and one of the one of the ways that we have we have like designed the way we use abortion victim photography, for example, is to design to use it in such a way that actually breaks through the noise so that people from Gen Z see it. Like in a visual culture, it's competing with a with an image that's powerful enough to draw them in and draw them into a discussion. What have you got when you were doing this research, because you're you're a few years older than me, so you're in my generation. What was the first time you realized, hey, like this upcoming generation doesn't actually automatically understand or process things the same way I do. And we're going to need to take a different approach and a different way of wording that question uh, would be, what was the first conversation you had where you used an argument that wouldn't have worked on you, but worked on them? Because I've had that quite a few times. Oh boy, there was a time when we, I used the future of value argument, the, the, the Don Marquis argument. He's, a, he's an atheist pro-life philosopher. He came up with his own pro-life argument. And I, I, I don't love the argument. I don't think it's the most persuasive, but it's really interesting to certain kinds of people. For me to say, hey, like he's this person's like, I've tried the equal rights argument that we teach. It's not working, but they're still there. It's like, let me try something else on you and just like see what happens and just be like, here's this argument that this atheist pro-life philosopher came up with. And I always say atheist in that sentence. I want them to know there is no like, hidden Imago day underneath the surface of this argument, like, don't worry, you might actually be able to buy into this without becoming a Christian. And and then I'll make the argument. And sometimes they're like, well, that's really interesting. Like, there's pro-choice philosophers. They're like, that's actually the best pro-life argument. I disagree. But like, yeah, wanting to kind of figure out where people are. People are so complicated. And a lot of times pro-lifers are taught, like, here's the silver bullet. Here's the one thing that we're going to try to get to like, you know, to, that, that's going to work for everyone if we can get in front of them. And clearly that doesn't work. So there are some people like clearly I have seen, I will tell, and, I, and, and I've said publicly many times, there are people that I would not have seen become pro-life that day if it weren't for abortion victim photography. I know it. Like I was making arguments to them. I was doing the philosophy thing for a while. And then they saw a, a, a certain picture, like a late term picture. And it was like, boom, 
like this, you know, and it's like, oh, I didn't know abortion was that harsh. So I'm like, that's what it took. Okay. And then there are other people where it seemed like if they'd even seen the science in the beginning, I wouldn't have even had a chance to talk to them. Like, like people are so complicated. And so trying to figure out on a campus of that is super diverse of where everyone's at as far as like the way they think and and kind of what how they tick is really complicated. It's not just about how do we serve the people that we can talk to, but it's how do we serve the people that we don't get to talk to? How do we serve the other clubs that are going to be even here after we leave? Like all these different things we're thinking about. But for sure, I mean, just even thinking about some of the, you know, like the way that even people process uh, visuals now. Like when I, when I read a study that showed that this generation is the most skeptical of any previous generations, like this affects marketing, like marketers are having a hard time advertising effectively to Gen Z because it's like they don't want to be fooled by, you know, what like what, what's the trick? What's the lie? It's like this is clearly there are there are some generational differences. And I think cynicism really does play into this generation, which is yeah. why every time a corporation has gone really woke, like there was a, there was a Pepsi or a Coke ad with somebody mm-hmm. crossing a protest line and yeah. it was, it was the biggest gag line, right? It only worked in the boardroom, but when actually, right. you know, when young people actually saw it, they're like, you've got to be kidding me. But one of the things I would like to know from your experience, because I have found this on campuses increasingly is that the most complex and intellectually satisfying philosophical arguments are often being utilized on people who are at the display, not to change their mind, but to engage in in intellectual combat. I have too often found in those discussions that even when I won the argument, I didn't really win the person because they weren't there to actually be challenged. So I I had one guy, for example, I I forget how long I argued with him, and he came up with some truly asinine analogies that he was really (laughs) pleased with. And at the end of it, he's like, no, no, you've got me. That was a great, I forget if we used Christoph Kazkor, like I forget which philosopher we used. Yeah. But, but like, you know, it worked, you know, like, and he was like, oh, no, you got me. I'm like, so like, what do you think about abortion? Oh, yeah, no, like still, like it was the whole, the whole, the whole <laughs> right. thing was more or less masturbatory for him, right? Like it wasn't right. about actually changing his mind. He was so, playing a game. He was in the game with yeah. you. You were playing chess. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you've had the same experience where those oh, yeah. who like to, on campuses who like to engage in the philosophy and the intellectual combat the most are actually sometimes kind of a waste of time. Absolutely. I was actually, I was just talking about this this morning. I was doing, I was doing a virtual speech and Q&A with Protect Life michigan's interns and just saying like there are some people you should stop talking to like pro-lifers just at a self-care level frankly you need to be willing to end a conversation where people are being super abusive and and if they're being closed-minded like why are we talking talking to a closed-minded person is like playing tennis with a wall like you might get better but that wall's not changing like what i'm not that interested i'm talking to someone who's like okay maybe we can move i'm there but for sure one of the main reasons I end a conversation is I'm talking to someone who will bite every bullet. It's like, yeah, you know, who says newborns are persons? But squirrels are, by the way. Like, I think we need to protect all the squirrels, you know, and everything. Everyone needs to be vegan, but newborns should be killed at will by their parents. Like, there's like every single thing because they don't want to concede any ground. And my first move with those people has become like kind of trying to give them a mulligan, like engulf, like a, like a total do-over and just be like, Here's a thing that happens to me sometimes, I'll say. Like, I end up talking to people who get into fight mode. Like, they're just they're just here to win a debate. And I'm not interested in playing that game. I'm in truth-seeking mode. I actually, like, I want you to change my mind if I'm wrong. And, and you could change my mind about my religion, about all kinds of things. But I, I don't feel like I'm talking to the real you because I don't think you really believe that all squirrels are people and toddlers aren't. And so... 
I feel like maybe you're saying that because you don't want to get cornered. And I get that. We all do that. But I'm not interested because I, I, I don't I, I want to talk to the, the real you, not this weird, extreme, you know, version that I'm talking to right now. So if I'm right, that that's what you're doing, I just want to give you a do over. Let's just rewind the tape 30 seconds. You don't lose any points. I'll actually be impressed that you took me up on it. Like and just like tell me what you really think. And let's like have a real conversation. And if we can't do that. If they're just going to be like, no, I'm going to bite every bull. I'm going to say whatever I have to say in order to win. I'm graciously but clearly ending that conversation. It'd be like every every conversation you have on a campus is a conversation you can't. Like I've got other people that I can talk to that are more open minded and more reasonable. And that's going to be a better time for everybody. So thank you so much for sharing your views with me. I thought it was pretty interesting, but I'm going to go now. Like, absolutely. You have to kind of cut the cord with some people. Cut the cord. I had never heard it put that way, but I, I, will, <laughs> I, will, I will henceforth refer to ending a conversation in, in that fashion. <laughs> I don't think I've even ever said that before either. So this is not the greatest pun, but oh, well. well. It worked well. One of the things that I was interested in, in asking you is like at CCBR for, for our training, speaking to high school students on the street and on campus, is that there are two rough categories of people. The first uh, group are people who have some sort of intellectual or ideological or religious support for abortion. The other group are people who have what we call a heart problem with abortion. And you'll be able to tell pretty quickly whether whether they're going to be persuaded by science, by philosophy, by compassion, by the images, by any of these things to become pro-life. And then there's a group of people who uh, have an emotional barrier, a personal experience, something that has to be dealt with before you can bring them to your position, whether that's their mother had an abortion, they had an abortion, you know, they were they were sexually assaulted, which is an increasingly common, especially on campuses. Yep. And one yep. of the questions we we often use to try and figure out what that is, is we'll sort of back off and to say, so maybe tell me about when you first realized you were pro-choice. Because by sharing that with you, they're kind of identify the moment where you can be like, okay, so that's what I'm dealing with. So then often they'll say, well, my, when my mom told me she had an abortion, I realized I wouldn't exist if she hadn't had that abortion or or what have you. But it kind of, it's a really common ground conversational way of backing them up to the point that you need to start in the conversation. What's your guys' yeah. usual method? And once you've realized that philosophy is not going to do it, biology is not going to do it, your best argument's not going to do it, but there's something that you need to deal with in the person before you're going to get there. What's what's your guys' general yeah. response or tactic? Well, first of all, what you just described is brilliant. That is so good. That question of tell me about when you became pro-choice, I can see why that would work a lot of times. And I love that. And I bet we'll be teaching that to people and quoting you. <clears throat> That's really good for sure. I think you're basically right that there I think I think typically everyone has a little bit of each of those categories, but like to different like the, the balances are different with everyone. I, but, but I think there's rarely people have like no emotional connection to abortion. Like what you don't even know someone who's had an abortion that you're like, you know, worried about or you haven't been affected by the Handmaid's Tale show or something like that. Like there's always some kind of emotional thing going on. And then the level of how significant of like, have they thought about this that much is like always really varies. There's always also like a selection bias thing that happens. This was a conversation that I've had back and forth with secular pro-life for years now, where I would talk about how I don't talk to that many people anymore on American universities that are like, yeah, we don't know when biological life begins. Like, I know that people, we had to deal with that a lot 20 years ago. But it's like, like now we don't talk about that very much. And Monica for Secular Pro-Life was like, I deal with that like every day in the comment sections. And that, that was the difference is I'm talking to people on college campuses and she's talking to people online who are just making different kinds of arguments. So there's also like we you and I are spending a lot of time with some of the, like the sharpest people 
And so therefore, we're dealing with some of the sharpest pro-choice arguments. And I know that sometimes YouTube comment sections are going to be a different thing. But for sure, like, we, you know, our conversation style is, is long, is if we're not trying to get, get in and out in five or 10 minutes, I think a lot of the best work happens after the 45-minute mark if you can get someone to stay that long. And during that time, given that we're taking them as time, I am very patient in the sense of if they're going to get into their story, or I might even ask about their story and let them just share with me for a while, and I'm building up a lot of rapport while they're doing that so I can get a sense of what makes them tick, I'm totally going to do that. And I'm not freaking out like, oh, my gosh, I'm losing all this time to make all these different arguments that I want to make. It's like, this is going to be okay. Like, I'm treating them like a person right now, like a valuable person. And, yeah, that means sometimes listening to long stories that don't even feel relevant. And maybe sometimes they're, they're not. For sure. So when we talk to people, though, that it doesn't seem like it's super emotional for them, like maybe they're not post-abortive. But for whatever reason, the intellectual arguments aren't working. Um or, and even sometimes, even if they are, like we we all, we, we have a, a brochure that we use at our outreaches. It has abortion victim photography in it. And so we all go to that quickly. Like we believe that abortion, it's a lot of common ground here, that abortion victim photography is very important. And a lot of people really need to see it. And some of them aren't going to change their mind until they do. And so we're just uh, doing a thing where uh, we're kind of picking and choosing at what point they're going to see it because they're not on our signs. And so trying to, you know, basically get their consent to see these, this, this, this abortion victim photography and then just have them stare at it for a while and they're not all defensive and like, how dare you, like that kind of thing that happens sometimes. It's like they really see it. Sometimes that's the most important thing that happens in the conversation. Like it really depends. And then coupled with really good arguments, for us, it's like we want them to see the images. It's a matter of we're kind of picking the moment in the conversation to to go there. So we definitely do that a lot, too. Abortion victim photography becomes a big part of our campus conversation. So it's not using the first, like, five or ten minutes. What would you say, and I know generalities are very difficult to make, but just for the listeners, let's say, who who haven't been on a campus before, haven't debated, and are trying to get a sense of what the experience is like. I, I realized, actually, I, I read Lila Rose's book, recently and and I reviewed it for the American conservative. And one of the things that I didn't put in my review that struck me about the book is how there's this like ecosystem of experiences that are normal to pro-lifers, but are abnormal to the rest of the world. (laughs) Like she was describing the feeling of like leaving an abortion clinic with her friends. And then one of her friends saying, why don't we stop by, you know, the in and out to grab a burger and like just the jarring difference between what she had just seen and this totally normal, let's get lunch thing. I'm like, yeah, I totally know what she's saying. I've had that so many times. And I'm thinking like, There is actually this weird group of people who have this like shared bunch of experiences <laughs> that are common only to, to them. Yeah. And I think that's true also for campuses. Like most pro-lifers that I know have, have engaged on a campus at some point. Yeah. And so if you were to try to describe the experience to somebody who hasn't done it before, how would you describe that experience? But then also like, what would you say the most common argument you get? I know the listeners are going to be thinking like, what is the most common argument that you get on campuses? The experience, I think, for the pro-lifer really depends on the on their personality. So there are some people who are like, they they kind of want the fight. There's a little bit of a, I'm going into battle now and I am William Wallace, like kind of a thing sometimes. And and so they're they're pretty excited <laughs> to to go out and get there. And then you've got other people that are like a bit more anxious and don't want to piss everyone off. And but it feels like this is a really important conversation to be having. 
And so there's uh, a little bit more anxiety that comes with with those. So like sometimes like listening to like loud, amazing like rock songs or something like that, like, like different things that like pump you up and kind of get you in the in, in, in the mindset. It can be hard. I mean, a lot of times it's boring. Sometimes you're just there and class is going on right now. And there's like no traffic. And then you've got this like 10 minute window. Sometimes there's a bunch of traffic and trying to get people to stop. And that's not always easy to get them to stop. And then you have some people who are really nice and excited and happy to be having the conversation, at least if you can get them past the first like minute where they're skeptical about who you are. And then you've got other people who are just going to treat you really badly. And you need to be, you know, able to draw some boundaries and, and take care of yourself there. Most common argument we get, I, I think basically is their bodily autonomy arguments. Like we've taken pictures of our when we we do poll tables pretty similar to to the way Justice for All does poll tables sometimes and and like there's some differences but in the end we're still doing a poll table and when we would have you know pads of paper where people could kind of vote to be you know if they're pro-choice and kind of give a reason we've taken pictures of those and it's like man eighty percent of the different things people are saying are some version of a bodily autonomy argument and so we hear it all the time it's taught in philosophy 101 as far as I can tell in like every American university like that they're going to hear the violinist argument and so we hear it all the time because it's just considered one of the most important thought experiments in modern philosophy and and so we get that I think far more than 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 most and so we've got a lot of training we've got if people go to com slash bodily rights we have a landing page have some videos and some articles and, and things that we've written. And in fact, uh, one of our background projects right now is refilming, rewriting and refilming the module of the first course that deals with them. Like we're not changing everything, but we had this really interesting experience recently. been working with this amazing student club at St. Olaf University who spend a lot of time and they do outreaches all the time where they were before COVID. They're doing outreaches all the time and they're so good at dialogue. Like this is the one club I've ever done outreach with. And I'm like, I could hire any of these kids right now. Like they are as good at us at all the even little intricacies of, of dialogue. They're fantastic. You would have loved. And, and they have spent a lot of time working with the way that we are teaching people to respond to bodily rights arguments before was involved a lot of like long thought experiments and trying to get very, very careful. And then we came up with kind of this, this new strategy, especially dealing with when people compare it to blood donation, like, Hey, you wouldn't force someone to do blood donation. So why would you force a woman to go through pregnancy? And we put out a YouTube video on that topic and it just kind of went a different direction, emphasizing intentional direct killing more than we had in the past. And the club then kind of switched to that tactic. And they were like, looking back, oh, this is way better than the first thing. So this is like where I'm in a process now, like let's take out some of the stuff that's not as helpful or maybe teach it really briefly, but to say like, hey, right now, as opposed to five years ago, here's what we're seeing is working the best. That's always what we've wanted to do is like, well, not what's worked before. What are we hearing and, and seeing is working right now? Because again, culture changes. It consistently changes. I think like the literature we deliver door to door has changed a dozen times in, in 10 years because we do poll test it as well. But like different arguments work better for different people. And yeah, and, and I think that's really important for pro-lifers who are seeking to improve and get better in terms of how they frame their, their critiques and how things were previously done. Yeah. And sometimes things are not wrong they're outdated and there's Correct. a very big difference between oh, that doesn't work i don't know why people do that and it doesn't work anymore because the culture has shifted Correct. which is i think a, a really a really important distinction one of the things that i know listeners always like to hear so i have to ask the question even though i'm sure it's a common question that you get is if you had to explain to somebody what one of your highlights of your career were 
and you had to narrow it down to like, well, I'll say two because one is often hard, but what would you say the highlights were? And I don't mean like, like a eureka moment where you come up with an argument where you're like, that's really good. And I feel very intellectually smug right now. That was phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, like when you were putting your, you know, your, your, your trade into practice and you were yeah. like, this is why I do what I do. One of them has certainly been working with that St. Olaf club. So just to, just to, just to expand the story just a little bit. So this is a club that was just, we didn't know who they were. They were given the Equip for Life course by the local pregnancy center. That was just willing to spend the extra money to give them all this thing. And they didn't even really want it, but they took it because it was free. And and then it just kind of changed their lives and they used it to train all the club members and the club expanded. So what became what used to be a very, very pro-choice campus where vandalism happened all the time, the admin did nothing about it. The pro-choice club was able to get hundreds of protesters to basically get the pregnancy center that used to do their annual fundraising banquet on campus kicked off the campus. They didn't want to come back. So they moved their their you know annual event to you know somewhere downtown or whatever, because it was just so just like crazy and, 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 and aggressive. Now this campus, a bunch of people are, have become pro-life. The admin immediately gets involved if vandalism happens and like they're getting a call like within an hour. We are so sorry that your free speech activity was affected and we are going to like and they will like get on the security camera footage, find the student who did the vandalism and punish him like it's completely changed this entire camp, the, 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 this campus culture. And that has a lot to do with how the club has behaved to the point that even now purchase people are like, I, I'm pro-choice, but they are clearly the best club on campus. Like, like they're super effective kind of a thing. So kind of hearing about, about how much that campus has changed has definitely been one of the big highlights. And then I think the international work. So I, I, so I didn't get to Ireland before the referendum like you did. I ended up going to do some of the post-work post which was in the beginning of 2020. And then two years before that, I was in Denmark. I mean, you couldn't have said it better, Jonathan. Like the the, the cultures that we are training, like the way the culture thinks about abortion is going to so affect how people ought to do their work. Like there are places where I'm teaching people like, man, you got to put up abortion victim photography signs. Like, like you wouldn't expect us. We don't do that in America. It's just one kind of area where we're a little bit different. But it's like, there are cultures where I'm like, no, they, you're in Denmark? Where in Denmark, they're like, why are you even talking about abortion? Like, that was 30 years ago. We're talking about climate change and, and Muslim immigration now. Like, those are the topics that we talk about now. It's like almost like someone being like, let's reconsider, like, slavery or something like that. It's like, what is wrong with you? Like, there's like so weirded out. So, like, Denmark is a place where I've been like, man... You, you probably need to use signs sometimes. Use the, use the victim, victim photography signs sometimes because it's a, it's a, it's a culture that, that, that seems different to me than the culture in America. And some very good people would disagree with me about that. And that's totally fine. But working with, with these groups where it's like, you know, I left Denmark and I left Ireland just feeling like I just hung out with my brothers and sisters in Christ who are in this different place that I just, I never think about them because they're, they're, they're over there and I'm here in America and just have these blinders on. And I love these people and being able to hear that kind of our approach kind of worked really well in their cultural context. That has been really, really rewarding and just makes me want to do a lot more international work. Has it just been Denmark or Ireland? Have you, have you been anywhere else? I've done Trinidad. So I, so I did Trinidad. Abortion was still illegal, but they were putting a pregnancy center together. So I've done Trinidad. I've done Canada a lot. I've done pretty much always Toronto for some reason. So I've always been on the Toronto side. Well, like 9 um, million of Canada's 35 <laughs> million people live in the greater Toronto area. So probably a lot of it. Yeah. So it's like there's like this thing in different cities in Toronto where like, 
the archdiocese of the city, like has it in place where they're going to bring in pro-life speakers to the the school. And so I'll be I'll be booked to speak at like eight schools in like three days, like all the 10th grade assemblies because they're going to get a 10th. They're always going to get a pro-life speaker in 10th grade and then speak at, you know, whoever's right to life fundraising event and, and do some things like that. So I've been in Canada. I love Canada. I love hanging out with Canadian people. It's just the best. And I've done a little bit of pro-life stuff in the Netherlands, but that was like a really long time ago. So I don't feel like that counts anymore. One of the, the questions I wanted to ask is the distinction between campus work and going out in front of an abortion clinic. Because anybody who's done yeah. pro-life activism knows these are wildly different contexts and scenarios. Yeah. I think most people who haven't done pro-life work could assume That'd be very different, right? Because when you're talking about, you know, most conversations get good on campuses around the 45 minute work with your people, you don't have that time when you're sidewalk counseling. You have a very limited window of time to persuade them to turn around. That's why it's generally referred to as 11th hour ministry, because this is last minute, right? This is you're at the edge of the cliff to try to redirect traffic. So what is the what is the Equal Rights Institute approach to sidewalk counseling outside clinics? Yeah. So the interesting thing is we actually are taking more time with sidewalk counseling. You would think it wouldn't work, but but a lot of times this is one of the things that Jacob changed my mind about sidewalk counseling is I always thought of sidewalk counseling as something that would be like, this isn't a part of pro-life ministry that women should be the, the people doing it. They're going to be the most approachable, certainly different age ranges. They're like sometimes like you'll have, you'll have an older woman on the sidewalk and it's like the, the, the abortion client will go straight to them because it's like they see their loving grandmother in, in this woman's eyes, you know, like, like, like that, that kind of thing. But it's like clearly women are going to be more approachable than men. So like counseling. Right. And Jacob was like, no, because a lot of times the person you're actually going to get to speak the most to is not the client. It's the client's boyfriend. Because he has got like two options while because this is like going to be a three or four hour thing. He can hang out in this waiting room with all these other abortion clients or he can go outside and he can hang out on his phone or smoking or whatever. And a lot of times they do that. And so then Jacob, as a guy, can can engage these, you know, these guys in a conversation and he will really take his time, get to know what's going on and and eventually build up the rapport that he can get fairly pushy in a way that men can typically only do with other men. Where it's just like, okay, this is like, there's a little bit of a man up talk, you know, that kind of happens. And you are a dad right now. What would you do for your child? If your child was going onto the street and was getting ready to get hit by a car, it's like, I would run out and save my, okay, okay. I'm going to need you to do something really uncomfortable right now. I, I, you need to actually go in there and and get into basically an argument with the workers there who don't want you to see your girl who is on the might be in the in the room now and and basically demand to see her and have a conversation kind of say I've changed my mind I really want to want to do this with you and and many times that's how clients have come out is by convincing the boyfriend to man up and be a dad and be a good boyfriend or husband we do take our time as opposed to kind of an approach that's like hey how quickly can we convince them to go to the pregnancy center is kind of a, is, is a typical other approach. And for some people, that is going to be the best thing. And and we're willing to, to admit that. But for a lot of people, it's like sidewalk counselors can move too quickly. And it just feels they feel a little dehumanized and like you don't really care about the problem. And they, and they just they feel like they're in a crisis. They feel like their house is on fire. And it's like you need to help them see that everything's going to be OK and that there are, you know, there's there, there are positive future possibilities here that don't involve killing their child. 
for them to kind of see and then trying to take them to a meal and get in and, and, and have a meal with them. And of course, if you have a meal with an abortion client, they can't have an abortion that day. So you just bought a lot of time and then, you, and then we get them to the pregnancy resource center. And so it is a pretty unique cell by counseling approach was the only reason we made a course. I didn't want to just remake another cell by counseling course, but his approach was so different and very much our style of dialogue of taking more time with people that um, we thought it was it was worth making a course for that. That makes sense to me. I've had long conversations outside of clinics too. I'll say mm. not often. My question would be how much? T- how do you know how much time you have? A lot of times, I mean, if 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 C's in there, like so, obviously, as they're walking from the car to the clinic, you're for sure trying to get them to come over. And Jacob's got all these different lines that he'll use to try to get them to come over. And some of them are like really creative, and he'll try to get them down. And sometimes that works, but sometimes it's like. They're on a mission, you know, they go in and C might not come back out. C might stay in there and only he comes out. And if that happens, you typically know that you've got a decent amount of time there. But certainly Jacob is trying to get a sense of what's going on for them. What the plan is here, you know, is is he having a chemical abortion or a surgical abortion? Like there's different things that you can get a sense for how much time you have and, and then kind of operate with within that. If, if C's just there for, you know, you know, a quick appointment, then like they're doing the actual abortion later, like that's a different amount of time that you have. And so you're trying to figure that out and you're working, you're just getting, you're playing a lot by ear. And sometimes you're just going to be wrong. Sometimes you're going to make wrong judgment calls. And that's why we have the whole, the last module of the self accounting masterclass is on how to process failure because you are going to mess up sometimes. You're going to say things that sounded right in your head in the moment, and then it didn't ended up just turning the other person off, and then they go in and they don't come back out until they're not pregnant anymore. Or there are just going to be times where you did your best, you did everything you could have, and yet they still chose to have the abortion a day, which is why sub-accounselors are like heroes to me. Even the ones that do things really differently than I wish they did, it's like, look, it is it is a emotionally challenging thing to watch women go into this building pregnant and then watch them leave not and and to know that you tried to reach them, you tried to offer them resources and help and love and all of that, and then they didn't go with that, and they did something else that's really, really hard. How to process that in, in a way that means that they will keep on coming back and not just have this horrible experience and be like, I'm not doing this anymore, has been, been kind of an important part of what we've been teaching people. Well, this has been a lot of fun. To close it off, please refer our listeners to the courses you just mentioned, your materials, your podcast. Where can people uh, get in touch with you and find your stuff? Yeah, I appreciate it. So you can find out more about us at EqualRightsInstitute.com. There's links to both courses from that, but you can go straight to the Equip for Life course at EquippedCourse.com. The Sidewalk Counseling Masterclass is at SidewalkCounselingMasterclass.com. We have a podcast, which Jonathan was on, two fairly controversial episodes on recently, which was really, really fun. We're talking about Evolve's Human Abortion, just to kind of this, you know, they, there's been a lot of arguments made by that group about, about pro-lifers like us. We decided to kind of just talk a bit about what we're observing, about what's going on. Or really, you did. I brought you on as the expert. I think you are the expert who is not an abolitionist on AHA. And, and that was fantastic. It was really great to do that with you. So we have a podcast. We've got a YouTube channel where I've been reacting to, you know, watching videos of people dialoguing about abortion or, or, or different things like that. And so there's a lot of resources out there. A lot of it's free. A lot of blog, there's a couple hundred blog articles now. And so if people want to learn more about what we're learning on campuses, we're excited for them to, to be able to do that. Josh, thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. Appreciate you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Josh Brom of the Equal Rights Institute. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And if you want to check out other conversations with faith, family, and pro-life leaders from not only Canada and the United States, from around the world, please head over to lifesightnews.com, click on the podcast tab, and there you can subscribe to our podcast so that you can get the episodes delivered to you. You can also find us wherever you get your podcast content. Thank you so much for listening, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.